Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent. The time has come. Jesus comes like a thief in the night. Is your heart ready? You must repent. Emily, repent. Alexa, you're okay. Jesus comes like a thief in the night. Is your heart prepared? It is time to repent. Repent. Did you know that people were partying right until the minute that Noah shut the doors on the ark? The time has come to repent. Repent before it's too late. All right, well, please remember to pick up your kids and uh, have a great week. <laughs> I, I mean, you laugh, but uh, I don't know, it was timely, biblically accurate. It was vitally important, clear, concise. To be honest, some of my best work. But uh, let me ask you this. If you came across me on the streets of Cayuga, Jarvis, or Simcoe, what would you think? I won't ask you what you would think if you saw me on the streets of Dunville, because I would just blend in. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Listen, if you're from Dunville and you're listening online, okay, let me introduce myself. My name is Pastor Mark Vanderweer. <laughs> All of my contact information, including my new home address, is available on kingswaystchurch.ca. Draw by anytime. But seriously, what, what would you think if you saw me walking down the street doing this? I was scary. I can, that, 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 that rings true. What else? Walk on the other side because scary. Okay, we're going back to scary. Anything else? Just scary? Don. Crazy. I like crazy. I like these two guys. That didn't seem right. Right, upsetting. Did I seem angry? At the very least, was I ineffective? I mean, it's hard to believe that this was once a common way of spreading the gospel out on the street corners. Did I look as scary as him? No, I'll work on that for tomorrow morning. You know what's even more concerning? It's still a way that people try to share the gospel. I think my sandwich board looked nicer, but uh, that's because Candace made it. But here's what I want to point out to you. All of us, whether we intend to be a witness for Christ or not, have two things in common. We have influence and we have a testimony. And it really comes down to answering the following question, what am I best known for? So let me give you an example, a baseball example, because this church is way too hockey focused. What is Jose Bautista known for? Who? Playing baseball. What'd you say? Throwing the bat, the bat flip. He's known for this. Oh, you got to crank this for me. tell you, I still get chills watching that. I watched about 30 times yesterday <laughs> while I was at work. Uh, I, I, all three guys who scored on that home run don't play for the Jays anymore, but he hit 344 career home runs. That's what we knew him for, and to be honest, it wasn't even the home run. It was the bat flip. 
What's Bill Buckner known for? Oh, 1986 World Series. Here, I'll show you. Correct. Five, five, and a delirious 10 inning. Can you believe this ball game is shaking? Oh, brother. Three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Fantastic. We'll, uh, we'll let that play so you can see it again. But that was in the 10th inning. And 10th inning is hockey for overtime. And that was the game winner right there. If they had not scored that run, if he had been out, there would be no Game 7. The Mets would have lost to the Red Sox. And that's what Bill Buckner is known for. And I think we can safely say that most people are known for something. Maybe it's your last name or who you're related to. Maybe it's your work ethic or your attitude when you're at work. Maybe it's even the clothes that you wear or the teams that you follow. Maybe it's the job that you do. But you're known for something. And some people wish that what they were known for, they weren't known for. I'm sure Bob Buckner would have preferred if I shared with you some of his Hall of Fame stats rather than that. Because Bill Buckner was a Hall of Famer. He had almost 10,000 at-bats in the major leagues, and he struck out 453 times. I'll give you some context. Billy, uh, Joey Gallo will strike out 200 times this season, guaranteed. And this guy struck out 453 times over 22 seasons a pure Hall of Famer. You Google his name, you don't get those stats, you get the video. But what I want want to know from you is, what are you known for? And this is going to require you to do a little bit of self-reflection. And this is something that's actually very hard to do, to think critically about yourself. And what I want you to do is this. If you look in the front of the chair in front of you, you're going to find a blue pen, and you're going to find a little name tag label. And it simply says, what are you best known for? I'm going to give you approximately 18 seconds to fill that in. Come up with something. Don't think too hard. Try not to ask your spouse. They'll just say something nice. What are you best known for? Here, I made a few while we're waiting here. Uh, I'm best known for being a Jays fan. I'll wear that. Or maybe I'm best known because I'm a teacher. That's what I do. Because I'm running the show. Great question. Thanks. Maybe, maybe this. If all of the mugs I have at home are correct that my kids keep giving me on Father's Day, maybe I'm the world's best dad. I'm going to be honest with you. I've never received that mug. This is the mug I get. Maybe I'm best known as the grill master. If you can kill it, even with your car, I will grill it. Or here's one that Mark made up for me earlier today. Greatest guest speaker ever. That's sweet. We'll put that one on top. I just do. Priscilla. Here's one for Priscilla. She's best known as the brownie queen. Can you put that on? All right. The rest of you, where's your name tag? Put them on. Now, remember, this is self-reflection, not true confession. Don't put something on there that you don't want people knowing because we're going to see it. And here's what I want you to do, and, uh, and uh, the people listening online, we're just going to pause it for a second here. I want you to get out of your chair and go find somebody that you didn't come here with today and exchange what's on your label. Tell them what's going on. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. If you're sitting, I'm going to come talk to you. Someone who you didn't come here with today. 
No. So, yeah. Sorry, you're going you're gonna to put on your label. You're going to go find somebody else, and you're going to exchange that information. All right, I'm going to bring your attention back to the front. So finish your thought. Find your chair. All right, if you're listening online, that was awkward, but we're done. So just to bring your attention back to the front, I wanted to share with you the name of today's sermon, and it's simply this. This is the best sermon ever. Well, I may have misspoke there, but this, the name of the sermon is Best Sermon Ever. And I see that some of you went with laughter. Thanks for that. Someone went with disbelief or jaw dropped open. Um, but thanks for that. But that's okay. You do you. But we're going to talk today a little bit about what most biblical scholars would consider to be the best sermon ever. And that's what we most likely call the Sermon on the Mount. And although I wholeheartedly agree that was the best piece of teaching ever done by anyone in all of history, I don't agree with the name Sermon on the Mount. Because if you say to me, Sermon on the Mount, Mount being short for mountain, I think this. I don't think this. That is the actual location of the Sermon on the Mount. It's mountainy. Yeah, you could call it a mountain or a hill or um, a, yeah, a, a drumlin perhaps. But uh, that's, the, that's the actual location. And most people believe that he spoke from about there. There's a natural rocky outcropping that kind of made a bit of a stage. And so that actually explains a little bit. Uh, a, piece, a little bit of controversy about this piece of scripture, and I love this sort of stuff. So there are, there are people who look at this piece of scripture, and they think it's a, it's a contradiction. They think it's a mistake. There's a mistake in the Bible, they would say, because in Matthew 5, it says that Jesus went up the hill to preach, and in Luke 6, it says he came down from the top of the hill to preach. And so if you just take those verses separately, it sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like a mistake. But if you read all of Matthew 5 and all of Luke 6, you find out that Matthew was giving us a description of what happened from the time they arrived until the time Jesus spoke. And what I mean by that is the disciples and Jesus arrived um, the day before. And the disciples waited at the bottom, and Jesus climbed up that hill, that mountain to the top. There's actually a church there now called Church on the Mount. Uh, climbed up to the top, and Jesus spent the night in prayer. Can you imagine the night in prayer by himself? He was talking to his father all night long. And early in the morning, a crowd started to gather, a massive crowd. And so at some point, Jesus called his disciples up to the top, and then as the crowd formed, Jesus and his disciples came down to the point, again, they think about here, because it says in Luke there was a rocky kind of outcropping there, and that's where he spoke. And to me, that speaks about the accuracy of Scripture, because if the Bible was written by a bunch of guys who just wanted to create a religion, and Jesus had died, so they're like, well, now what do we do? Let's just make this up. You, you, don't, you don't do that. You're very careful about what you say, and all of your accounts would be identical, saying he went up the hill, he prayed, he came down the hill. And so I love that, that sort of uh, thing. If you really want your mind blown uh, after the service, ask me why it says in Matthew that uh, Jesus was standing, and in Luke it says Jesus was sitting. And I'll share that with you after. It's pretty interesting, too. 
Um, but then he begins by speaking about the Beatitudes. And you know what those are, the blessed, the blessed are section. And I don't know about you, but it's probably just me. I think if I'm there, I'm keeping score. You guys imagine that? You know, he says, blessed are the poor. It's like, oh, I'm not poor. Uh, blessed, are, blessed are the, uh, blessed are the, uh, the hungry. Well, I haven't eaten today. Blessed are those who cry and weep every day in the morning on the way to work. Okay, this ignores it. It's, it's sad, really. Uh, you know, bl- blessed are those who are excluded by others. That's high school. Like, I, I don't know if I can win the Beatitudes, but I think I just did. But then he goes into the part that we're going to talk about tonight. He starts talking about salt and light. So let's read that together. We're in Matthew 5, and we're starting in verse 13. And it says this, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. And listen, I like a good metaphor as much as the next guy, but salt and light doesn't really speak to me. I mean, if it was like hot sauce at the battery level on your iPhone, maybe I could kind of dig in a little bit. But it's, it seems strange to me to talk about salt and light, but I think we have to remember that 2,000 years ago, salt and light were much more important concepts. I mean, now we have other ways to flavor our food, and if we want light, it's just at the flick of a switch. But to hear people, um, to the people hearing that at this time, these were, these were very powerful concepts and things that they would, uh, they would understand very well. And the second half as to why salt and why light is simply this. Salt refers to, refers to our influence, and light refers to our testimony. And we're going we're to work our way through that. But first, what does salt do? Well, the Salt Institute claims that there are over 1,400 uses for salt, so I thought I would list them for you alphabetically. Um, but time being what it is, uh, maybe we'll skip that. But I think we can focus on the idea that Jesus meant it as a food additive, as something that flavored food. By the way, the 2019 Salt Institute Convention is in San Diego this summer. Good seats are strangely still available if you're interested in going, but... Uh, But for our use today, salt adds flavor. So let's be clear, salt does not enhance the natural flavor. Salt overpowers uh, flavors that are considered bland. So you don't add salt to French fries. I brought some fries with me here today. You don't add salt to French fries because you want more potatoey goodness. You add salt to French fries because by themselves, they're bland. And so that's what salt does. And if you go to a fancy restaurant, you won't have salt and pepper on the table. And that's because the chef... If you have a chef rather than a cook, uh, the chef doesn't want you messing with what he's created. He's created something, and you're supposed to taste it the way he intended it. So unless you ask, they won't give you salt. And I mean, I see that myself, too, with my sister. My sister just finished her culinary degree. She lives out in Ottawa, and uh, she's a great cook, but when she, she makes stuff for us, I just put salt on automatically, and she gives me that look, right? And then she says to me, well, how do you know it needs salt if you haven't even tried it? but she's my big sister, so I just tell her to shut up, and I'll eat it the way I want. <laughs> you see, the tradition of having salt and pepper on the table is not that old. It actually came from the 1600s when Louis XIV, the king of France, um, would have these huge dinner parties that would last for, for days. 
And it just so happened that he had a very weak stomach and he couldn't handle food that had any sort of added flavor to it. Everything had to be bland for him. So he actually began the tradition of having bowls of salt and pepper and herbs and spices on the table for people to add themselves as they chose. And so if we follow Jesus' explanation, we see that we're meant to be like salt, to change the flavor, if you will, of the culture around us. And but the church, the church for so long took that to mean that we should kind of force what we think on other people. But I don't think that's what Jesus was asking us to do. I think adding salt to those around us can best be summarized like this, to show the love of Jesus in ourselves for other people to see. And what does that mean? Well, it means being genuine as you walk through difficult times with other people. It means offering forgiveness for those who have offended you. It means selflessness, putting others ahead of yourselves. It means demonstrating and extending grace to people in your lives. And grace, by the very definition, means to people who don't deserve it. And you know what happens when you apply salt to food? It tends to create thirst. When you add salt to those around us, we can help Holy Spirit to create thirst in others. Remember, salt is our influence. So when the salt of the world, if we're going to be the salt of the world, we're helping to create a thirst in others to seek out Jesus. I remember Joanne Cafazzo sharing, uh, when we first started coming to this church, she, came, she was sharing how um, when Danny was in the hospital uh, fighting cancer, she would share how people would see a light within that family. And they would come up to her and just say, what is your deal? Your son is very sick. Why do you have joy in your face? Why are you loving? Why are you passionate and caring? And it was because they were seeing Jesus through her. That's an influence that only she had. We couldn't show up and insert ourselves into that situation and have that influence because Joanne was living that influence with her, along with her family. And, she ta- and they talked about that, a peace and a calm that only God could provide. People come, become thirsty for a relationship with Jesus when they see the love of Jesus in us. Jesus calls us to live in our lives in such a way that our influence permeates our culture and our communities and our schools and our work sites and even our families where we often think we need to, we need to uh, influence the least. Because that's what influence is. Influence is the ability to change culture, not by picketing or protesting or boycotting or judging other people, but by allowing Holy Spirit to work through us to demonstrate the love that Jesus has for us. In that way, the world around us will see Jesus uh, in us, in his followers, and they'll thirst after him. They'll know there's something special there. So can salt lose its saltiness, as, as Scripture suggests? Is that even possible? Well, it is, but you either need to apply a huge amount of electricity to salt to separate the sodium and chloride ions, or you need to dilute it until it's no longer effective. And I think what Jesus is referring to is a version of the second one there. Um, this is the idea where salt, back in 2,000 years ago, you know, we didn't have Tupperware. I brought salt today in Tupperware to keep it from becoming spoiled or contaminated or, or from bugs getting in there. And they didn't have that 2,000 years ago. So it was not an uncommon practice for salt that had been spoiled, been contaminated. I'm going to put my sign back on. That was, that was awesome. I don't know if... The, we'll, see if uh, we'll see if we get it back up and running again. But uh, that's, that's what Jesus was referring to this, that if it's contaminated, if it's no longer uh, usable then it becomes something that, uh, that can't be used anymore. And so it says that it will be trodden under our feet. And so it's, it's almost like this. If I'm going to offer up my, my fantastic fresh fries here, anybody? I picked them up after school yesterday. Anybody? Anybody? 
Okay, I'll bring them back to you. But first, of course, got to add the salt. There we go. Oh, there's some lint on that one. Now, it won't work with Isaiah because he'll still eat them cold, two days old, with lint on them. But for anybody else, they'd be like, well, no, no. You know what? I, I actually prefer ketchup, which, which I can also... Uh, I was pro- Yeah, no way is correct. As I'm reminded often, you don't do your own laundry, but would you like to start? So that's what happens when there's no use to it. When people refuse it, when people don't want it, it's trodden underfoot. It has no use anymore. Now think about what that means for us if salt refers to our influence. We can lose our effectiveness, our influence, when we become diluted or contaminated, a little bit like this. And so because we live in a time, and I believe this very strongly, we live in a time where people are hungrier for God than we ever have seen before. And we tend to think it's the opposite. We tend to look around and see godlessness all around us, and we think that people are, are pushing God away. I think people are looking for God in every opportunity they have. And we have an opportunity to be the salt that flavors that. But then Jesus continues, and he talks about light. And so we read this before. We'll just kind of review it here. Verse 14, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So Jesus refers to two sources of lights here. The first, he refers to this light from a city on a hill, and it was probably better described as a city in a hill. And here's what I mean. This is Cappadocia in Turkey. Put it on your bucket list. It looks so interesting. So this is housing from thousands of years ago. They would live in the side of the mountain. They would live in caves that they would dig out and they would, they would expand and they would live in there. And then, and you can see there's some newer versions over here. And then the rest of the town or the rest of the city has kind of grown up around it. But look at it at night. Hard to miss. But then Jesus also refers to a lamp. And most homes in Israel at the time when Jesus was teaching would have been one room. And they would have had a lamp, and usually there would have been only one lamp as well. And they would have placed that in the middle of the room on a stand if you could afford it, but just as often on a low table in the center of the room. And, and that would be cleared off and moved there when it became dark. And the rest of the day, they would move that table away. And so the thought of putting a basket over the lamp would have been ridiculous. Because it's the purpose was to illuminate the room, and especially the faces of those people who sat around it. And so Jesus, standing there on the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe sitting, um, in front of this huge crowd and everyone's hanging on every word he's saying. No one's checking their phones. No one's elbowing each other saying, hey, I heard there's a free lunch. When's that coming? They're hanging on every word he says and Jesus says to them, you are light. And whether you were light or not was not up for debate. He doesn't say that those of you who are light shouldn't hide it. He simply claims that they are light. Everyone shines. And that's why we say that our light refers to our testimony, because everyone has a testimony. Everyone has a story of what Jesus has done in their lives. And I think that sometimes we misuse that word testimony. Uh, For many people, testimony means the story of when we first gave our lives to Jesus. But really, a testimony is the actual story of how God has changed you since you gave your life to Jesus. And Jesus says to all of those who are listening, and he says it to us, you wouldn't put that light under a bowl, would you? So what does light do? Think about it. When you turn off a light in your house, darkness shrinks in. 
But when you turn that light back on again, it exposes the darkness and it eliminates it. Light and dark can't share the same space. You know, when I was young, I was actually very afraid of the dark. But now with electricity bills being what they are, I'm more afraid of the light. <laughs> There's a second reason why Jesus uses this illustration of light here. And it may not be what you think. If I asked you what light represents in the Bible, you might say goodness or purity or righteousness. And those aren't wrong. But to be exact, it refers, light refers to the presence of God. You can see it here in John 8, 12. It says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Jesus tells us that he is the light of the world and that when he lives inside of us, we become the light of Jesus that shines for others. John tells us that light is life. And based on what we know about light, if there is no light, there has to be darkness. People without the light walk in darkness. Because there are people all around us who are dead in sin because their life is void of the light and the life that Jesus gives, simply because they've never been exposed to it. And many of us are surrounded by people, family, friends, co-workers, that are living lives that are completely separate from God. But what's more amazing is what happens when someone who is living in darkness is exposed to that light. It's an instant change. Jesus says that when we have light in our life, uh, when we have light of life within us, Holy Spirit can work, which is our testimony to, sh to shine a light into someone else's life and then to lead them out of darkness into a relationship with Jesus. And light does something else that I just kind of referred to, and that is it can be used as a guide. Let's go back to Matthew 5 for a second. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed for a, on a stand where it gives light for everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. That light shows people the way to Jesus. And I struggled all week to, with what to say next because it just kind of, my, my thought process just kind of ended there. Uh, and then I, it took me a while, but I finally realized what was missing is a simple piece, but it's a piece I think we forget sometimes. And that is God is still calling people to himself. God pursues the lost. But one of the most important ways that he does this is by using you. We have never and will never have a God that does not pursue his lost children. He simply doesn't just hope that people will one day come to the realization that life is better if they seek after Jesus. God actively seeks them out. Now, every sermon is supposed to have a challenge at the end, and I can't challenge you to be salt and light because you are salt and light. So what's your takeaway? I think it's this, that we need to start living a life worthy of our purpose and our calling. And so just as we have, one life, we have just this one life, and it's a small amount of time that we spend here on earth, and we're asked to do something with it. God has created us, breathed life into us, adopted us as, our own, as his own sons and daughters for use in demonstrating his glory. And when I say that we're to live a life worthy of our calling, I, don't, I didn't just make that up. It's in reference to Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And so how we live, how we get along with other people, how we love each other, in our relationships with each other is a, makes a huge difference to how other people see Jesus. Because here's the thing, salt has no effect if it remains in the salt shaker. 
Or maybe a better example is this. Does anybody know what makes the Dead Sea dead? Some of you were shocked. You're like, I didn't even know the Dead Sea was sick, but it's dead. It's salt. Why is there so much salt in the Dead Sea? Because it's trapped there. Because it's, because it's the lowest place on earth. The Dead Sea is basically a puddle, and water can't escape from it. So there's all these ways water gets in. There's only one way that water gets out, and that's through evaporation. And when evaporation takes place, you can't really see this well here, but this is all salt on the shoreline. When evaporation takes place, water leaves, but the salt remains. And so every day, every year, the Dead Sea becomes deader, if that's possible. Because there's no, there's no moving that salt out of that location. For salt to be effective, it's got to go somewhere. And if you didn't like that geography example, I'll give you a history example. Uh, do you know who Oliver Cromwell is? Lord and protector of the United Kingdom in the 1600s. He wasn't a king, but he acted like one. So uh, Oliver Cromwell was facing a huge currency shortage. Uh, he was going bankrupt. And uh, what he uh, did was he got his advisors together and he said, go out through all of our lands, our colonies everywhere, and bring me back silver. If we don't get some silver, we have, we, we're, we're going to go bankrupt and we're going to be taken over by the French. And so he sent these men out and they were gone for months. And when they came back, they said, we can't find any silver anywhere except in the churches where they've, built, where they've created statues of all the saints out of silver. And Oliver Cromwell said to them, well, that's perfect. Go melt down the saints and put them into circulation. The same idea. Getting salt out of the salt shaker, getting the, the silver out of the church. It's this idea that if we're, not, if we're not salt and light, if we're not affecting those who are around us, we're not following God's calling for us. And so if you don't like my geography or my history example, that's just too bad. That's all I teach. <laughs> and if I had a math example, you wouldn't want to hear it anyway. So, so if you're here tonight and you're a follower of Jesus, you are salt and you are light. You're called to use your influence and you're called to use your testimony to create a thirst for Jesus and to show people uh, who Jesus is by showing them what he's done in your life. And if you're here tonight and you aren't a follower of Jesus, can I tell you something that uh, you may not even know about yourself? It's time. That if, if, if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, and will do what he says he will do. There's no lesson to be learned. There's no class to take. There's no verse to memorize, and there's no magic prayer to say. Just tell God what he already knows, that you want to seek after him. And you know what will happen? You'll become salt, and you'll become light. Because I know it sounds like a cliche, but you are unique, just like everybody else. But that's actually not true. The opposite is true. What makes you useful is that you are unique. You have a reach into people's lives that others don't. You have a testimony to share that others don't. And because you have this unique combination of salt and light, you can reach people that other people simply can't. It's a little over a year ago, Mark preached a sermon that, was, that he called My Story for His Glory. I think you called it that. I called it that. And basically, we heard the testimony from a number of people from our, from our congregation. We heard from Nellie. We heard from Bev. We heard from Vanessa. And each story was so very different and the way people responded to each story was so very different. Some testimonies just rang true in such a powerful way because there was, there was salt there, there was light there that they couldn't find somewhere else. And I think we, we need to understand that the reason God wants all of us to be salt and light and tells us that we are salt and light is because what makes us unique is what makes us useful. And so let me just finally say this. Jesus saves, 
but you can shine. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for an opportunity to share your word tonight. Uh, it's powerful to think that some, so many people feel like they don't know what their purpose is. They don't know what you have uh, in store for them, Lord. And you've just told us something right here, that you want, us to, you want us to be salt and light for those around us. You want us to allow people to see you in our lives so that they will thirst for you and they will, ch- and they will chase after you. We know that you love every, everybody on the planet, Lord, that we're not special because we, we follow you, Lord, that you, that you have made it special that those out there who don't follow you, that walk in darkness, we know that you love them just as much as you love us, Lord. So let us rise up to that call. Let us rise up to that challenge to be salt and light, to make sure that we're living in such a way that people can see you through our lives. We just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.